Welcome back to the Cardiac Exchange by Medtronic. So how has ECMO now changed in the last, let's say, 10 years? Of course, you know, we have um, new diseases, new type of respiratory failure as well, H1N1 infectious disease, and now recently more COVID. What's, what do you see as the biggest change in the last 10 years with, with well, ECMO? Well, 10 years, actually 12 years is the key time because uh, until 2010, uh, ECMO became standard practice for pediatrics. So for babies and children with respiratory failure, children with cardiac failure of whatever cause, over that 30 years of time, ECMO grew and became standard practice. Every major pediatric hospital had has an ECMO team and devices and so on. So it's just standard practice. But in 2010, a couple of things happened. One was that uh, companies, primarily in Germany, built member built ECMO machines, which did not exist before that. You had to borrow devices from cardiac surgery and make it in your basement and things like that. So by 2010, uh, two companies in Germany made and sold ECMO machines, which were much better than the handmade things that we all use. They were safe, they were reliable, they were controllable. And of course, this was Novalung and McKay, and those two companies uh, built the first devices. Not much market for it, so I always congratulated them. They're, they're planning ahead that we think there might be a market for this. And so they did excellent work. Those, by the way, were all engineers. So once they saw how it worked and how physicians used it, then they just set out to build better devices and, and were very successful. And nowadays, there are uh, several companies yep. that make ECMO machines, including Medtronic. Uh, so um, that was one thing that happened. The other thing that happened was that there was a prospective randomized trial of ECMO for adult patients with respiratory failure, similar to the one that we'd done 30 years earlier and done it very badly. This study was done exceptionally well. It was done in the United Kingdom. The home base was Leicester, England, where there was a superb ECMO team. And they did this randomized trial showed, showing a major advantage to being on ECMO if you have severe respiratory failure. Then the third thing that happened was the H1N1 epidemic, which was just a, the, the annual viral pneumonia, but it was with a virus that had not been around for about 40 years. So uh, the winter occurs uh, out of sync in the southern hemisphere with the northern hemisphere. That virus hit first in Australia and New Zealand. They had uh, adult-sized ECMO units and they're very good at it and used it for H1N1 and reported something like 75% survival in patients who were failing on a conventional ventilation. So all of us in the Northern Hemisphere said, okay, we better get involved with that. So centers that did not know anything about ECMO had to learn about it, had to buy the machines, treated the patients and found the same results. 70% of patients recovered and survived who were dying otherwise. That was built into a uh, another randomized trial that was a uh, 
match pairs trial, which showed a, a great result. So those three things happened in 2009, 10, 11. And so uh, ECMO became uh, manageable and practiced in several advanced adult ICUs by 2010, 2011. Uh, but then when COVID came along in 2020, uh, all the other centers said, well, we better learn how to do this. So it grew very rapidly in the last three years. Yeah. And um, actually, so the Lester team learned the lesson uh, that you just told us about, make sure that you have an experienced team. If you, if you want to do a study, um, you know, um, you better do it with an experienced team with this. Otherwise, you know, it will be a failure. So what right. does it mean also for introducing this technique in a hospital that currently doesn't have ECMO? What would you well, advise them? Yes. Well, that it takes uh, quite a long time usually to establish an ECMO team, uh, not only to learn how to cannulate, get a patient on ECMO, but to manage them while on ECMO. So for most intensivists to manage a patient with severe respiratory failure by taking him off the ventilator altogether and tolerate an arterial saturation of 80%, uh, it takes a lot of uh, relearning of, of uh, pulmonary physiology. And that, that's still going on, of course. So that's, uh, it's quite different than trying to manage a patient who's living on the mechanical ventilator now it's better to be off it altogether. Yeah. I, I just heard actually some surgeons also suggesting that those patients that were maybe put earlier on ECMO, instead of trying to ventilate first, and if ventilation fails, then put them on ECMO, that the patients that you put earlier on ECMO may do better. No, uh, that's that's been done, but it's a bad idea. Because ah. uh, a, a patient early on in respiratory failure you know, the next step is to put the patient on non-invasive ventilation. If that fails, then to go to intubation and mechanical ventilation. And that usually works. So it's only if the patient is failing on mechanical ventilation that you would consider ECMO because it's risky and has its own set of problems. Um, once the patient is at the point where they're in 80 or 90% mortality risk, then what we've learned is they should go on ECMO right then, not to wait two or three or four days to try to improve their ventilation. But there have been trials of patients who uh, went directly from dyspnea to going on ECMO. Can be done, but it's really not necessary because you get into the risks of anticoagulation and so on, which uh, many patients do not don't have to go to that step. Right. And then, of course, you get always good results because you already put them so early on. And maybe they could also have survived with just a ventilation, mechanical ventilation. Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, so with the um, the COVID situation as it, as it develops, you, in the early phase of COVID, you saw that the mortality was pretty high uh, also for patients who were put on ECMO. And in the second wave or third wave, however we call it, the results became better. Is that learning the technique, uh, selection process, the disease has changed? The opposite. The, okay. um, when COVID began, this seems like a long time ago now, but at the time, uh, 
through ELSO, I should tell you what that is, but yeah. through ELSO, we advised people this epidemic is starting. It takes about six people to manage a patient, one patient on ECMO per day. And uh, th those people didn't exist. They, they had to be taking care of the people who were dying of COVID. Uh, so uh, our advice was, yes, if you're very experienced and you know how to do ECMO, uh, you should you should go ahead and use it, realizing it's really going to cut down the patient, people available for caring for other other patients. So uh, the experience center started with that, and for the first I don't know thousand patients or so, uh, the results with ECMO were quite good, uh, about thirty nine percent mortality, uh, seventy percent. 60, 70% survival. So we said, this works quite well, but it is time consuming. And it turned out to be, it's just viral pneumonia. It's like any other viral. Remember, we all thought this is a crazy virus and it causes strokes and coagulation problems and all these kinds of things. And we don't understand it, but pretty quickly it became, it's just another viral pneumonia and you can deal with it like any other viral pneumonia. Right. Uh, when that information got published, uh, which was quite early on in, in the pandemic, then other centers said, well, gee, maybe we should be trying this. So you're quite right. In the second wave, uh, the uh, disease was a little more severe, uh, but also many centers started to use ECMO that uh, were learning how to do it on, on the COVID patients. So the... Uh, mortality went from about 40% to about 60%. Uh, and if you we did track the patient, the centers that started ECMO and the early COVID patient, and even their mortality went up from 40% to about 50%. So, uh, so we've learned a lot about it in the process. The but unique thing about COVID compared to influenza or any other viral pneumonia is that uh, it can take a long time, meaning a month or two or three for the lung to recover. We, we, it used to be that if we're on for a month and there's no lung function, we just turn the patient off. I'm sorry, but your person, your yeah. one died of viral yeah. pneumonia. With, exactly. uh, because the devices now are so good and because we've learned how to manage patients during ECMO, meaning getting them off a ventilator, waking them up and so on. Uh, somewhat to our surprise, we've found patients that commonly recovered all the way back to normal after a month on ECMO or two months or three months on ECMO. The longest yeah. one is 600 days of time on ECMO with recovery at the end, not a COVID patient. Amazing, uh, but, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so we learned a lot about lung biology that we didn't know before, partly because of COVID. The other thing that we learned is a, a couple of intrepid transplant surgeons. Ankit Bharat is from Northwestern. He was the first to say, I've got a COVID patient. He's been on for two months. He's not going anywhere. How about if we transplant him? And yeah. he did that successfully. Everybody thought he was crazy to, to transplant a patient with acute respiratory failure, not getting better, uh, 
we we always said never do that because there are other patients who need those lungs more than that patient. But the patient did well. And the last time I talked to Dr. Barat, he'd done 36 consecutive transplants in COVID patients, all successful, all home, all doing well. So so we've learned two important things that we did not know before. Number one, the lung can recover back to normal after months of time of ECMO support. And number two, you can transplant patients with this type of acute respiratory failure with, with success. The question nowadays in the big research centers is, okay, how long could, should you go waiting for the lung to get better before going to transplant? And we don't know the answer, but it's somewhere between two and four months of time, something like that. Yeah. CT scan is not always a good guidance, is it? I mean, sometimes you can look at those CT scans and the lung looks horrible. <laughs> and well, they yeah. can still recover. Yeah. You, you can't make anything out of the x-ray or the CT scan, no. uh, nor can you from the lung histology. You might say, why don't we just biopsy the lung after three weeks on ECMO, and we can tell whether it's going to recover or not. Uh, turns out that's not the case. It will be eventually. Someday, fairly soon, we'll do BAL and look for the cells that come out of it and say, okay, this lung is going to get better or it's not. Maybe someday we'll be able to add stem cells into the lung to speed up the recovery, although so far every attempt to do that has failed. But sooner or later, we'll get there. What's, what's interesting is that we now know that there are cells that will generate new healthy lung that are probably already there. And uh, how do we find them and how do we turn them on? Yeah, right. Do you have maybe an, an, an explanation for the, the long COVID, which often involves the lungs? Um, do you have any long insight COVID. in long <laughs> yeah. COVID? Yeah. No, yeah. Well, long COVID, as we've all learned, is a is a bad problem. And what percent of patients with COVID get it? One half of one percent of COVID patients who actually are in the hospital and on a ventilator, maybe now up to five percent, something like that. Uh, it's it's the same thing that happens with H1N1 and other types of long ICU stays. It's In my view, it's mostly about being uh, in a ventilator on an ICU for a month and uh, uh, usually totally anesthetized for all that time. And if that, that happens to other patients and they, they have long, long recovery yeah, times. Right. So whether it's the disease or whether it's the management, we don't know. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so how has you you already mentioned a little bit also, which is a, one other important aspect of your work that you engaged other physicians around ECMO and and yes, that, it turns out that was very important. In yeah. the, uh, early on, most of the ECMO cases were newborn infants, so the people who were involved were neonatologists and pediatric surgeons who dealt with neonates all the time. Uh, so we taught them how to do it. They literally came to Ann Arbor and, and we put animals on bypass and showed people how to, what we were doing. And we only asked them, let us know how you do. So if you're going to go home and do this, please send us 
your results, what happened? Well, by about 1988, we had 700 cases of newborn infants with an overall survival rate in, in 50 different centers around the world of, of uh, about 80%. So we, we thought, well, we need to get together more frequently and go over that data and see what's working and see what's not. So we started this organization called the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization in 1989 uh, with uh, a handful of centers that were doing this fairly regularly. And that's grown over the last 32 years to be the, the primary gathering place for people who are interested in ECMO, starting with babies and then moving on to all the other types of cases that do it. And the most valuable thing that ELSO does is to maintain that registry. So it started with patient number one. It's now at about 160,000 cases that are children and adults, respiratory failure, cardiac failure, septic shock. And so we track all that information so we can, uh, if anyone says, well, I've you know, I want to start an ECMO program. Uh, what what kind of patients should I expect to treat? And what I, can I expect the results to be? Well, we can say you're interested in just doing uh, cardiac failure patients. In the last five years, there are 34,000 cases. And here's what works and here's what doesn't. And here's Elso will tell you, here's how you set it up. Here's the textbooks here, the training courses, teach people how to do it and so on. Yeah. So that's what Elso has done and continues to do. Right. And of course, you know, you, you as you just mentioned, you need the whole textbook uh, to really teach people, uh, you know, what is a successful uh, ECMO program. But can you mention a couple of key factors that needs to be present to develop a successful ECMO program? Well, the, uh, the thing that's easiest seems to be the most difficult, which is cannulation. How do you get it? What kind of machine do you need to get? What kind of cannulas do you need to get? Who puts those cannulas in? How do you do it? What are the complications and so on? But actually that's now become pretty standard practice everywhere, especially with things that we never had before, like, like uh, ultrasound <laughs> and things like that. So, uh, so you can get a patient on uh, the, the things that you need to do in any given center that's that's going to do ECMO routinely in some group of patients is uh, you need to have buy-in from a few people. Uh, number one is the nursing director, because you're going to put these patients in ICUs. And as you all know, the, the person who controls traffic in the ICU is the nursing director. It's not the docs. <laughs> and secondly, you need to have buy-in from hospital administration because it's going to cost uh, a lot of money. Typically, let's say a million dollars just to start if we have this idea because you have to pay for training people and buy the equipment and actually buying ECMO disposables is the least part of the expense overall. Uh, so so the hospital director has to say, okay, I'm buying into this. Uh, let's try this for five years, and I'm going to give you a lot of money. And the third thing you need to have is one person who's in charge of it, because uh, depending on where you're doing it, maybe the neonatologist 
want to get into ECMO, maybe the heart transplanter wants to get into it, maybe the pulmonologist wants to get into it. They all have different ICUs. They all think that they're, uh, I was going to say God's gift, that's overstated. <laughs> they're experts in their particular area. So if if you have your pulmonologist wants to learn how to do ECMO, but the you need the uh, pediatric cardiac surgeon who also needs it, different people. So they all have to gather together. They all have to meet regularly. They all have to develop, develop the same protocols, just hard to do because the pulmonologist has some idea of how to run a ventilator and the pediatrician has another idea. And so, well, for example, what's what hemoglobin should be? Well, the pediatrician says, well, it should be 15, of course. That's what <laughs> children are. Some uh, adult pulmonologists say, oh, no, you can do fine with a hemoglobin of seven. Well, maybe you can, but not ECMO. It runs on hemoglobin. So <laughs> all those things need to be sorted out. So that's yeah. what you need. The nurse, first of all, the uh, hospital administrator next, and then get a, a bunch of people who don't know each other. And if they do know each other, don't like each other, they have to work together. Yeah, collaboration is key here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Cardiac Exchange by Medtronic. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe to your preferred platform. You can also get more info about today's podcast and upcoming shows at medtronic.com slash cardiac exchange. Thanks for listening.